You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. You had a a race this weekend, and you had one of those interesting situations where you were the reigning champ. Yep. And you're in better fitness this year, and you went out and smashed the course record, and you ran into a buzzsaw. I sure did, yeah. Is that is that how you phrase that? Ran into a buzzsaw? Yeah, yeah. Just You ran into something that was just on a tear. And you did everything right and had a much different result and feel, even though you performed better than you ever had at this race. Something changes when you run into a buzzsaw. Yeah, you know, when, you're, when you, you meet an opponent who is simply better than you, no matter how many times you roll the dice in that situation, you will lose every time. That's that's just when you when you are outclassed. And that's what happened to me this weekend. You think if you raced him ten times, he'd win all ten? I think he'd win nine of them. Yeah. I I, I basically so I ran the Zumbro seventeen trail mile uh seventeen mile trail race this weekend. And it's uh it's in like bluff country down sort of closer to the Mississippi river. So it's real hilly. We did 22, like 2250 in elevation gain in the first 13 miles. And then the last four are dead flat. So it's a pretty good 13 mile run. And then you're forced to try to run like fast on flat terrain, but um, yes, reigning champion down there. And I think there was about 600 or so in the 17 miler. It was a good, you know, it draws a good crowd. And um, the gentleman that I was made aware of, that could potentially be fast and be a problem was indeed a problem, a big problem, Bracken. And so, yeah, that, that the buzz saw that you're referring to, his name is Joshua Mirth, and he was a problem. Give us, give us the the quick but detailed race recap. Walk us through how this thing went. Because the last time I was made aware of someone who could be a problem, it turned out to be Chris Brown. Sure. Before the Tahoe Ultra, Aaron Newell messaged me and said, have fun dealing with Chris Brown. And when someone says something like that, it's never like out of left field on their end. It's they're aware of something you're not, and they're just giving you a polite heads up. And I found out 400 meters into the race that the race was already won by him. There was no, there was not going to be a challenge. And and it it changes your entire mindset for the race because training, even if you envision the worst case scenarios, you're still a competitor. And so that worst case scenario is things go wrong, but I'm still fighting my way back. Yep. And sometimes that that ship sails early. It yeah, it did ship uh, sail as early as 400 meters in, thankfully. But we we start with like a 350 foot climb out of the gates and or 300 foot. Yeah, 50-foot climb in the first mile. And I knew there were four contenders there that are real contenders. Myself, uh, Joshua, uh, then another gentleman, Nathan, and then Kurt Kaiser is his name, who took second last year. And Kurt's a 219 marathoner, um, but he's in his mid-40s now. So he was a 219 marathoner in his early 30s, but he's still Mm -hmm. damn good. Um, 
anyways, I led the first climb feeling comfortable and good. Just like, I have no problem. Like I'm just going to take it out aggressively and hard. The course was in great shape compared to last year, even with all the rain, um, which was shocking. Apparently last year we had a late snow melt that whole week of the race. And that's why it was so sloppy where this year we had a snow melt like a month ago. So this current rain could just soak right into the ground. Anyways, it was a faster course. And then about a mile and a half in, um, Joshua, uh, made a move and not a move. Like I'm going to slowly pull away, like a move in which it's like, I'm going from 545 pace, which is about what I was running on any flats I could see to 520 pace. And he went by me like I was standing still and the four of us were still together. And I made a split decision move to go with him and go with him. I did for about three or four miles until I realized my heart rate was in the one eighties and I'm in mile three and it's a 17 mile race and it's a problem. And then at that moment is when I knew if he's not bluffing right now, or he's miscalculated, like I don't see this happening. And, uh, and by the time I look back, the, the rest of the field was gone. I mean, we surged so hard for a few miles and, and then I just slowly bled time the back half of the course. In fact, I ran the last few miles slower this year than I did last year. Um, so I think I could have actually run faster if I ran smarter, but I raced to win. Mm-hmm. And that cost me, I think, maybe a minute or two in the overall scheme of things, but it was the only way to go. So ran hard. I ran 203 at this race last year, uh, 203 and change, and I ran 156.0 this year. So um, like eight minutes, seven minutes faster, seven and change. Again, it wasn't as sloppy, but did what I could and got beat bracket. And he smashed the course record. I'm embarrassed to tell you, I went back and looked at this, this guy's time. He ran 150 flat high. He beat me by like five full minutes. Insane. Wow. So there are levels to everything as we say, and that 130 pounds of prancing the way this dude ran just got up and down those hills a little quicker than i did well congratulations thanks brother you got a couple good things out of there you got a great race a great Mm -hmm. effort that's going to launch your fitness and you caught an honorable whooping and sometimes (laughs) that's a powerful thing to do (laughs) It, it really was yeah i got a good whooping that's true in the movie 300 which is obviously super exaggerated from what real mm-hmm. life was, but they, they keep laughing and searching for that beautiful death out on the battlefield. Yeah. Sometimes you got to find that you found your beautiful death. You got an honorable whooping. There's something honorable to that. Maybe there is. You qualified for that level of whooping. The rest of the people couldn't go with and didn't get that broken second half. You qualified for a beatdown, and that's awesome. Thank you, Bracken. It was the most shattered. I felt the last four miles that you basically descend and then it's a four mile flat, like fo- like service type road through the park. Mm-hmm. And you think like finally the flats, but you've taken so much damage at that point that, you know, your pacing just crushes. And as I told you, I was running like miles 15 and 16 were like 542 and 536 at the end of the race. And I still was bleeding out time to this, this guy. Mm-hmm. And so what, what more do you do, Bracken? What more do you do? But nothing you went for it i sure did barely hung on if that race was another mile longer i would not have broke the course record as in like i would have faded so hard that i would have lost the time that i had i had 
you know, gapped, but, uh, yeah, that's it, man. So I went for a run already today. I went for a nice, easy 12 miler. And, you know, I talked about that, uh, that run I did on the roads when I was out in California, maybe three weeks ago after our San Luis Obispo race. And, and that just caused so much damage, the descending there that this race, although I was completely smoked, I am functional because I think set myself up well to, to take a beating. And that feels nice to not be limping down the stairs or being able to sit on the toilet without a problem today. It's, it's kind of nice. Like training pays off. Who would have thought? It does. Yeah. Training. And that's where those big swings matter more and more. We've had some people message us about how they took a lot out of that episode where we talked about, you got to swing the hammer hard from time to time and just nope. overreach on a singular workout, not in, consecutively in training, but on a singular workout, sometimes you got to smash yourself. And in the 5k world, the 10k world, you know, the, the, the sterile running, it's not as imperative, but since we have a lot of trail running and mountain running that happens on this podcast with ourselves and with listeners, that's when it matters because you get into situations where you just have to take a lot of damage. I spent the weekend reading race reviews. Oh, not the whole weekend, but when I had downtime, I found myself in a groove of reading race reviews because you always pick something out of people's race reviews. I was reading some Ian Corliss stuff, and then I was reading some John Albin race reviews. You mean like a race recap? Yeah. Sorry, race recaps. Okay. Yeah, I don't know why I said I kept saying reviews. Race recaps. Finding some knowledgeable, they don't even have to be high-level athletes. It helps sometimes, but just people who are knowledgeable and think their way through races and just read their recap and find things out. And Albin's were striking me that he had a fantastic year last year. But he was destroyed during races. He won mm-hmm. a lot of big races, and he almost quit in a lot of big races. We watched him win the OCC at the UTMB weekend, and he almost quit in that race. And then he managed to hang on and then gave up first place. He decided, all right, second's cool. I know I can't outclimb this guy. And then outclimbed him on the last climb. He just decided to swing one last time. But several times throughout that the, the, these race recaps, he either was ready to give up or realized my downhills are smashing my legs for some reason today. I just don't have my normal downhill. Mm-hmm. But none of us ever knew about it watching him. And he was just able to take some of that damage because of his years of training. It didn't make it any easier in the moment, but he was able to survive it rather right. than fully cramp. So those big swings, they pay off not necessarily in the moment. And it's a good thing to remember. They don't pay off in the moment. That's a really good lesson to kind of bring back to light. I think it uh, it's what kept me from cracking completely, to be honest. And those big hammer swings are like once every three or four weeks. We're not talking like every week. Like yeah. once a month, break yourself so you, you can't quite function properly for the next three or four days. But you can't be doing that all the time. Then you every time you swing the hammer hard, it swings back at you just as hard on the recovery side. Mm-hmm. And so that's exactly right. But... It's just good to get out there and get an honest effort in on feet. And um, and I know you got one of those coming up here in a bit, so it'll be good. I will say that uh, the patience game, even though it's only, a, only in quotes, a two-hour race, like I did not play the patience game. And in a two-hour race, it's long enough when you're going climbing and descending where the patience game, I think, net positives as far as, you know, running faster, so... Something yeah. to keep in mind. But again, there's there's merit to going out there and racing. And there's two different ways to look at it. And so yeah. 
Yep. A race. So you're in an interesting situation because you had a half marathon distance, but an elite level marathon duration. Yeah. And that's where the trails and mountains get tricky because you look at it and say 13 miles, I can get by with one bottle or I can get by with just a gel, a gel and maybe one cup at an aid station. But you got to almost look at it like fueling for a marathon because you're going to be out on course for two hours. So give us, give us the full breakdown. What'd you wear? What did you carry? And what was your fueling strategy? Um, yeah. So I just wore a virus compression shorts and a Merino long sleeve craft on top. It was like 31 degrees when we started, but you know, the mornings they, they heat up quick and they're real brisk this time of year, which it got into the mid to upper forties in two hours by the end of the race. So pair of gloves, thin Merino wool, long sleeve craft, which I will, I would, you know, recommend nothing other than, and a pair of Scott super track RCs on my feet, RC twos. Would you go with Sockwise? Uh, Swiftwick. Swiftwick. You're yeah, full you, on con- convert to that. You converted me to twenty dollars socks. Yep. Yeah. Yep. You did. <laughs> Fifteen. Fifteen. My bad. They're worth it though, and they last. And the way they grip, like the thing about the Swiftwick socks, like the way they grab your foot on the inside, and the way the sock grabs the shoe is better than yeah. any other shoe sock I've ever worn. So that was it. And then I wore my Nathan Peak belt with a sixteen ounce water bottle, which is all I used. I think I ran dry about four miles to go. I conserved and I took uh, Bolt Energy Chews, which was a mistake because it was so cold they froze on me. So I went to eat my first one and it was hard as a rock, which became a problem. <laughs> so I had to let them soak in my mouth a little bit before I could get them down. So I, I ate five chews at the half hour mark. I look at my watch and it took me six minutes to get down five chews is what it from minute 30 to minute 36 before i got down five just storing them in my cheek like a chipmunk until it warmed up enough then chewing it it stuck to my molars right because it's so firm and hard it was just like it was a mistake i didn't think about the temperature with chews like an idiot and so the second time at an hour they were still frozen and then the last time at 90 minutes when i took them they'd finally softened up as i think body heat and temperature rose so where were they stored that they froze just in my little pouch on my nathan peak belt huh what would you do differently if you had to do this again i would go with some sort of liquid calories or you wouldn't um, like tuck them in your shorts gel. yeah i could have done that i guess i i mean i think i would have just changed fueling choice but yeah um but the weird thing was is like in tahoe a few years ago when it was in the 20s i had them shoved in my uh vest same choose. I love these. I think I feel a notable difference after I take them uh, versus other nutrition, which I don't often feel, you know, actually entering my body uh, energy wise. But anyways, and in Tahoe, they were they were completely warm and fine. So I don't really I don't know. Who knows, Bracken? All I can think of is the back of that peak belt has does it have that little plasticized back liner to it? So it sits in between that and your body. It's pretty thick. It's a little like foam padding, I think, in there. Yeah. So I think there's like a buffer in between the body and just the didn't get that, that skin contact. I was going so fast, that wind rushing by Bracken just That's what it was. Mm-hmm. And I hear you ran up against the pulsars on the trail. Yeah. The uh, Solomon pulsars. I hear they're fast. They looked fast. We had a chat about those after the race. I can't run in a shoe that minimal. I mean I don't it was like a six ounce shoe for a two hour race. I think you could. It's It's got that newer foam. It's got that surprising amount of cushion to it. However, I'm going to wait for the soft ground. I almost got you a pair this week in Kirk. You don't know this. Because I'm, I've got a bunch of alerts set up now because of Ireland. And just if certain gear comes on, I want to see it. And there was a size 10 and a half popped up. 
a uh, worn once didn't fit my foot and I and I almost bought it but I thought what what are you ever going to use it for that you need 2 mil lugs I don't know nothing and I and I really like my Hoka Zanals which is a little more of a, a sh- shoe but it's similar in yeah, grip so, so. I almost got nice it. It was a good you. price. What was what was the cost? It was ninety dollars. Oh, that is cheap. Yeah. So, uh-huh. but soft ground. You got to wait for the soft ground. You get the extra two two and a half milliliter lugs, which adds to the cushioning, and then you get a little bit more torsional rigidity up top in the knit upper to keep the rolls from happening. But mm. just just so you know, that's the thought that counts. Yeah, it really is. You've already got me a pair of shoes. So we, I may I may reach out to this Joshua Mirth uh, to get on the podcast for an interview or uh, Kurt Kaiser, who's, I think, 48 and still crushing it and has a bunch of master's records who finished just you – know, he was six minutes behind me or seven. But nonetheless, um, he's got a good story, and I think we might try to get him on too. So we find these – I don't know if you guys listened to the, uh, the Justin uh, – Justin, yeah, interview on Friday – uh, if you haven't listened to it because you don't know who he is, like go and listen to it. His story is amazing, and just I was just engulfed in the whole thing. So, anyways, there's good stories from people who maybe aren't as known by you guys that we're trying to seek out. So, yeah, he was a he was a gem. He really was. Do you want to fill people in on what's going on with you, and then we'll hop into today? Well, I bought a camper this weekend. No, you didn't. <laughs> yeah. Shut up. <laughs> yeah. Wait, are you joking me? No, I, it's it's a joke because you bought one and I'm stealing your thunder. <laughs> yeah, I bought a camper this weekend, a new one. <laughs> I bought one too. You shithead. You didn't... And a really old one. <laughs> Why? Why did you, you – is it an upgrade? It's a lateral move. Uh, it's the, the pop-up that Lisa and her family had growing up. They sold a year and a half before we bought ours. And we've given her parents constant crap of not just saving it for us. Well, the guy that bought it, is an all-around handyman. He made all these upgrades. He cut a hole in the side and installed a window air conditioner. He uh, installed a fridge, a microwave, uh, replaced the wheels, just did a, put a bike rack on it, made all these adjustments to it. And then this year, his family's gotten too big, so he went and bought a 25-footer. And he asked if anyone in the family wanted this one back. So we went <laughs> and bought that back off him. With the upgraded. With the upgrade, but it's it's the nostalgia. This is the one she grew up camping in. It's just a pop-up, but the problem with Arnie, even though I love Arnie to death, is we're still one bed short. It's always cramped. It's always uncomfortable. Everything about him is convenient from the time we get there to the time we leave, except for eight to ten hours every single night. Mm. How big is Arnie? He's 16 feet. Oh, that's pretty short. Okay. Yeah, he's a small one. He There's no slide out. If there was one slide, we'd be set for life. But watching your season, Ashley I, I believe, is she the crier? Uh, yes. Ashley I had this moment of clarity where she referenced something that Tinley, Tinley said, which is, Something about the the something along the lines of like a theoretical crush or something like that, where you fall in love with the characteristics that someone the idea. has, yeah, the somebody. idea of them, but they're not in the package you need. But it refines how you need to look at your future spouse. Of this is what I really like, but I've got to find the person that has those. Mm-hmm. And and I was sitting there looking at Arnie and hearing Ashley I talking to me, and I realized that's what it is. Everything about Arnie is what I love. But there's just one bed too few. And at the end of the day, that's going to be a, a deal breaker. So we moved laterally. We have a lesser v- camper now, 
but with two queen slides that come out. So now oh, we nice. can fit all the kids comfortably. That's what I grew up using. Uh, I feel like we could make this a running and camping podcast because we're kind of nerds that way. But <laughs> congratulations. I take it you'll sell your old one and yeah, I want to keep them. <laughs> I just want to keep them. <laughs> but I'm, yeah, I'm going to send them off some today. Send someone else off. will take good care of Arnie. He'll make he'll make someone else really happy. <laughs> and and they deserve he deserves to be happy too. Well, I'm happy for you guys and Arnie will find a new a new home. So, nice. I kind of want to keep them for one last haul when you and I go to to Granite Peak and do a training weekend. Yes, I uh, I upgraded from an 18 foot to a 24 foot. Ooh, <laughs> Cherokee gray wolf. Oh, this thing's got it's way more. I get excited and buy things on a whim. That's how I work. And this one would be one of those. It's got a freaking fireplace inside, separate bedroom, separate bathroom, <laughs> like like yeah. out of control. Blue lights, surround sound, Bluetooth hookup, solar panel powered, uh, backup camera, all the shit I don't need. Uh, Jess and I have basically lived in it the last two days. We like go in there and like have dinner in it. And we're just like real excited about it, but cute. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's unnecessarily awesome. So, and the Tacoma can haul it. Yeah. Yeah. Is it right up at the upper limit of the Tacoma? Yep. Yes, it is. That's the problem. You buy a nice enough camper and it costs the price of a camper and a new truck. And a truck. I'm good. I can fill the whole thing with water, the water reservoir, and it's right at capacity. So I'm good. And it's towing nice. So, okay. Yeah. And then one last update. And then we got to get to some relevant stuff is just like anybody who lives on the lake, this is my first year living on the lake. And, uh, And I thought, I don't need to take my dock out of the water for the winter it'll be fine i said and anybody who lives on a lake has a cabin on a lake or a cottage as we called it growing up and knows that that is a dumb bonehead move and all my neighbors had been chuckling at me and walking by saying spring's coming i'm gonna be watching your dock and i'm like it'll be fine it'll be fine and the melt has started and a big wind came in yesterday and blew the entire like the, the lake is unthawing for about 20 30 yards from the shore now so it's like the ice is floating out in the middle and it's not touching the barriers and 20 mile an hour winds came in yesterday and blew the whole ice chunk from the lake into my shore and jess and i watched our our uh, dock get lifted up out of the water twisted completely upside down and sideways and crumbled into my own shore in like slow motion as the ice just did what the ice does. Ripped the poles right out of it. They're all bent at 90 degrees. Pulled the dock from the shore 10 yards out into the lake. I had to run out there and ratchet strap it to my tree so it just didn't disappear into the abyss. So I learned a hard lesson yesterday. Wow. And it's so slow motion. The ice moves so slowly that you're just like, no. And you can't go and do anything about it because it's, you know, how many metric tons of ice coming in. And uh, it was a humbling day. A dock crumbled in front of my eyes. Yeah. I'll send you a picture, Brack, and it's You caught two whoopings this weekend. I sure did. Sure it's did. good for the ego to be wrong sometimes and to get beat sometimes. Humility is important. Um, do we want to get into today? Yeah. We've got some good questions we've we've received, and I would like to address them. Okay. Before we do, my my Extreme 2 arrived tomorrow, and I think this is the shoe I'm most excited about testing uh, probably in the last year, maybe year and a half. Uh, I've got some, some of the specs I've been looking up, talking to some of the people who are in on it, and 
if they accomplished what they set out to accomplish, it's going to be a very good shoe. So I'm excited to try it out. Yeah, I got a pair on the way as well. And just, you know, just to a testament to the kind of people that are running VJ USA here. I don't know if I can say his name or not. He likes to remain anonymous, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we talked about VJ and, and our partnership sort of dissolving a few episodes ago. And and our, our contact over there was still nice enough and to reach out. And we talked and had a nice conversation and still wants us to send us shoes and let us try them and all of that, even after, you know, we had kind of had a conversation about it. So it just goes to show the people that are running the organization are, are good, good people. So thank you, kind sir, and VJ Shoes USA. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. You want to kick something off here? I do. So here's a very good question. Oh, this this sounds like a real radio show. Hey, guys, longtime listener, first time DMer. Appreciate you, Dave Shaw. Okay. Math versus 80-20 running. Are they similar? Can you just do math for the 80 part of 80-20? Does it really matter for, in quotes, beginners? Or is it similar to weightlifting in that it doesn't really matter whether you do strong lifts, Wendler versus, I'm not sure which word he put down here, but you're going to get stronger with consistency anyways. Anyway, love the podcast, guys. Great question. So math is something that I've been a proponent of in the past in certain situations for certain athletes. And math stands for maximum aerobic function. And what that basically means is that there's this shoddy calculator that calculates what your maximum aerobic function is or maximum aerobic force. Basically, it's just talking about aerobic threshold. So the concept behind that is that you just do all your work at aerobic threshold and you just consistently get better and better and better. And over time, your pace increases as your heart rate stays the same. And in theory, eventually... Sorry to interrupt, but you're saying, so to clear the air, like every single run is at aerobic threshold. You're never doing like true threshold work or correct less than that and just recover. You're always running right at aerobic threshold. Correct. Okay. It's almost like the inverse of 80-20 of, of polarized training in that you run gray zone every day. And I don't even like the idea of gray zone other than that because it is a zone. It's aerobic threshold or just under. But you run that every day and you just work on that like aerobic power of running. And there is some there's some power to it, but there are some issues with it. First of all, this is by Phil Maffetone, who's a very famous coach and is more learned than I and more experienced than I. And so I really don't have a platform to stand on and criticize him from. But I've read two of his books and I have searched for the then what And it's never materialized in any of the writings that I've got from him. It kind of seems like this is the ultimate base building, but the books never really get around to actually telling you what do you do next? Mm -hmm. Then what? And he he had extreme success with this because of Mark Allen. And Mark Allen won a ton of Ironman world championships after he partnered up with Phil Maffetone. And it's kind of one of those cases of chicken egg and how accurate is the story of the chicken and the egg? Were these Ironmen going to be one anyway? Did math training just pull him back and save him from himself in training? And did he only run math training or did he use the principles of math training, but then do a whole lot in addition? And that's the story that's never fully come out because both Mm -hmm. people are very financially tied to this system. So general overview of math is that uh, you run at your aerobic threshold. 
80-20, which is polarized training, means that you either work well under aerobic threshold, you're either running entirely aerobic or entirely anaerobic. You're not spending really much time in the middle, and you're really reducing the amount of time you spend anaerobic. You're only spending up to 20% of your weekly volume doing anaerobic work. So that's the definition of the two. Do you have any history with math? Not really. No. I mean, I, I'm aware and, and know, but I, I've never, like followed it and i only know surface level uh principles okay i have used it in my at the beginning of some of my stints at altitude when i moved out to colorado i just ran at math for a month sure i wasn't i wasn't adapted enough to do quality work and easy work to run truly aerobically i had to walk any semblance of any hill and i didn't want to do that either because i had some goals for the year so i ran at math and i worked on getting better at running uphill at altitude at my maximum aerobic function so i've done that there i've recommended it for some ultra athletes which was what for heart rate reference for people who are like kind of just for your your own what were, what was you shooting for on the heart rate front there i was trying to be right at or around 148 Okay, 148 for you. And not that yeah. you're the same as everybody else, but just to give people an idea. Yeah. Yeah, my heart rate's a little, usually about 5 to 10 beats lower than a lot of the people around me. But my right. my max tops out 5 to 10 beats lower, so it's all relative. No. So for things like that, I think it's useful. But for a long-term plan, I just am not a proponent of math. I think that for long-term development, you can't beat polarized training because it saves you from yourself. But it's also very scripted out as what next. You can progress through a, a an intensity schedule in math, and there is no what's next for math. There are hints, there are recommendations, but there's nothing that ever says, this is what you need to do, or this is how you need to think about what comes next. And my general consensus is that if you can't dumb it down and explain it, it either isn't explainable or you don't quite understand what should come next anyway. So again, that's not an attack on Phil, just that is my take of the system. So I don't have much of a use for math anymore other than those rare occasions. And I don't use it for longer than four to six weeks with anyone. Well, I haven't read Phil's book. So um, I guess I'm wondering, is there any progression suggested beyond just running at your aerobic threshold every day? And what is it if there is? Well, you do your math test every few weeks and you run... I forget what it is, if it's a 30-minute math test or whatnot. Um, you can tell how little I use this. It's been years since I prescribed a math test mm -hmm. to anyone. And you repeat that, and then you move to a faster pace, and you try to keep your heart. And then you try to lower your heart rate, your math heart rate. So eventually, you're just really increasing efficiency is what you're doing. If you might start at 9-minute pace at 148, and you eventually crank it down to 7-minute pace at 148, but now it's kind of hard to run 7-minute pace and still have a 148 heart rate because it's too easy, then you retest with a lower heart rate. Now maybe you use 142 as your math heart rate and then restart the cycle. So it's really just working on your aerobic power and capacity. But you can't do that indefinitely. And... It'll progress semi-linearly for a while, but then it stops. And at that point, mm -hmm. the books get really hazy on what next. In fact, it's maddening to read them and 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 like there'll be a chapter of, all right, you've you've maxed out this, what next? And then you read it and you realize, I don't think you know what I should do next. And so that's <laughs> been frustrating for me always. Okay. And I know Rich knows Phil and Rich Diaz does. And so if he ends up hearing this, I'm like I'm not I'm not attacking your buddy, but I don't agree with his heart rate calculation method. 
and I don't agree with it as a long-term training plan. All right. Polarize, on the other hand, you can do your entire life. You just play around with your intensities because there is there are safeguard rails for doing so. Okay, should we move to the next one? <laughs> yeah, that was a long one, and I was mainly talking the whole time, but I have thoughts on it, and I know a lot of people get steered towards math early because it's simple. You have one number to know, and you just go out and do it, and so it is often recommended for beginners. Okay, I have a um, a sort of content uh, idea or like a Training Tuesday idea question. I thought maybe we could just dive into this just briefly however we would like. Mm-hmm. Um, this is from Monica uh, Home Somebody. Uh, this is back from January, so we're getting caught up. Um, hey, Bracken and Kirk, love your podcast. Content idea. Could you do a season planning episode where you break down the series coming up in the year, High Rocks, Decafit, the Spartan Series, OCR World Champs, etc., and discuss the differences and what kind of athletes do best in each? It would help people with season planning and choosing A races and getting people excited for the coming year. This would be a specific episode on 2022 race rather than a general episode on how to plan your racing year, if that makes sense. I think you've already done one like that. You could also discuss what, discuss what races you have planned for the year and what makes you excited about them. What do you think about that? Do we want to open that can? I almost never say this, but this is one of those questions that I think you, whoever wants this, might be better served just paying someone for for advice there's a lot of specificity that they're looking for here and maybe we could do an episode off this but it would be very difficult to do an all-encompassing all the different race series how to approach it what to look at in athletic characteristics that'll suit you for each different series and how to go ahead planning a year i mean that's that's what you and i do on a daily basis with athletes Mm -hmm. that pay us to do that so this is one of those rare rare times that's almost cringeworthy for me to say but if this is really what someone wants, sign up for a consult and we'll do this personalized for you rather than kind of a shoddy generalized version for everyone. Well, and it's a next level question, meaning like, you know, Monica's a student of this and obviously mm-hmm. thinking far down the road and planning and periodizing, which is commendable. It's a, it's a tough one to dive into in generalities, I think. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's sort of the tough one, but it's actually a really good question. It's a fantastic question. It's so good that the the answer requires personalization i think yeah i'm glad you're at that level and now it's very specific to you so you got to find someone Mm -hmm. and it doesn't have to be us find someone that you think is an expert on it and pick their brain no um let's see here next one is uh see we got some good ones see people are really helping us out here and and this is from january 4th so again it's it's a while ago jennifer child says uh hey guys idea for a training tuesday Go through different types of cross-training and how it applies to running and OCR. In addition to the aerobic stuff, you could also look at other activities that contribute to skills, like rock climbing or other sports. Came up with the idea on a particularly long, leg-burning ski run. Thought all this eccentric and isometric work might actually contribute to my downhill running without all the pounding. The holy grail! Exclamation point. Might all of these off-season schemo people are getting more than just aerobic gains for their running? Happy New Year and thanks for all the great content. Great question. We've hit that a little bit. We each talked on our individual coaching theory episode about our hierarchy of, first of all, our belief on non-impact cardio on cross-training and our hierarchy of machines to use for your best bang for your buck. But Mm. I suppose we can rehash it here if you'd like. Sure. You want to start it? 
Yeah, if you could only own one thing to get you better at running, I believe it should be the treadmill. I think investing in a treadmill, in particular, if you are if you are not an off-road runner, invest in one that can go fast and be stable at speed and not worry about burning out the motor or the belt or having slipping. Nope. If you have any inclination that you'll ever use hilly terrain in a race, get an incline trainer. Get the extended warranty. Yep. You will never, ever regret it. So the Nordic Track Incline Trainer is my recommendation for what most people should buy if they only have one purchase ever as a cardio machine. Yep, I agree with that 100%. And I think it's worth holding off on that treadmill and saving a few extra thousand to get the incline trainer versus, oh, I can afford a regular treadmill now. I would say wait, suck it up, go to the gym and use a regular treadmill until you can afford to get an incline trainer on your own. Single most game-changing piece of equipment that isn't even looked at as cross-training, but how many of you are power hiking out there in races, like mountain races? Mm-hmm. All of you, we are. Like, talk about cross-training. Get on your incline trainer and power hike. That's as good as it gets. And it's good for leg power and, and development. And so it's just the ultimate cross-training machine, which sounds weird to say. Yeah. Twice this week, I my legs were smoked. <laughs> I started the week out with five and a half hours of, of running in the first three days. And I had to keep working, but I could not run. It was not smart. And twice this week, I just got on and I walked uphill as my workout for an hour. And I got better doing it. Yep. I think for OCR, like specific um, cross-training was a question there, for example. Um, you know, OCR requires us to shunt blood to upper body oftentimes as well as lower body do obviously to the running component so i think good ocr cross training would be a piece of equipment in which requires upper body engagement um, mm-hmm. mostly just if it's not for the blood shunting principle also because it is easier to get your heart rate up when uh, cross training equipment involves your upper body could it be an elliptical with handles on it with some decent resistance sure Assault bike is king in my eyes with uh, with the arms, and then the rower is also great. But again, if you're an OCR athlete, we're required to use upper and lower body to perform well. And so then I go, would even prefer that over like a regular bike. Um, cross-country skiing, if you have it, is fantastic. Uh, yes. That's limited times of year, but that is the ultimate, I would say. Um, but I always think about that, like... Uh, blood shunting and using my upper body for cross training um, when needed. I agree. And I think it's where we differ slightly, but under the same umbrella, which is if we could only choose one secondary machine, I would choose the opposite of running something like you said, that would involve the whole body. And I would go an air bike of some sort, and you would probably go rower. But both of us would be happy with either of those things because they force you to do work with upper and lower and you can also change what percentage you use. If you're mm-hmm. really smoked in the legs, you can pull a little harder. And if your arms are smoked, you can push a little harder with your legs. And it's just so good for your body. So if I could only own two things, it's treadmill and then an assault bike. I'm camp assault bike now, for sure. Yeah. I had a honeymoon phase with the rower, but I think I think the assault bike translates better uh, to running. And I also, I like the way it engages um my quads, uh, when I choose for it too, when I lay off the mm-hmm. arm. So I just, I like that option. Yeah. Um, anything else we want to add to that? Or do you think that's good enough there? I mean, from there down, everything else is, it's going to check a box, a spin bike. It's going to work your quads. 
it's going to be harder to get your heart rate up. It's very good for just easy cardio. Elliptical, same kind of thing, a little bit more running focus, but it's not taking you through your same stride. Uh, skier is probably the least focused, but it's also really good if you want to blow yourself out or want to work hard, mm-hmm. but it's just, it's very, very different than anything you're ever going to do unless it's an event that you need to ski erg. No, probably best case is that you can just go out and cross country ski or roller skate with, you know, cross country roller skate with, with poles and with roller blades. Um, But any of those things after, after our first two gold standard machines all will move the needle aerobically or anaerobically, but you start to lose sports specificity after that point. Mm -hmm. And if you're a high rocks athlete or even like a DECA athlete, I would say you can start looking at cross training too, as like functional movement. So you could you could come up with a strength circuit and keep it aerobic, for example, and do, you know, wall balls at a pace in which you can sustain into a walking lunge, into some sort of push-up, onto the air bike. Like when we talk about cross-training, if you're doing some of those high transition, um, you know, races, it can also look like that, which I've, I have done in the past. It's very effective. That's also something to think about. You'll see it on my Strava from time to time. And I'm not great at posting everything, but you'll see strength run on there. Mm -hmm. That's all it is. I set the incline to 10 or 15 and I just run aerobically. And every few minutes I hop off and I do something like that. Something that's either short enough that even if I'm working powerfully, I'm not really compromising anything or light enough and long enough that I can just work aerobically with some force output being there. Yeah. I mean, one of my bikes on my Strava every week will just say like morning ride or whatever. And it's, I'll do a 15 minute warm up on the assault bike and do aerobic work. And then I hit a strength circuit of three, four exercises back on the assault bike for two minutes of active recovery in the one thirties back to my strength. I mean, you don't know what I'm doing in there, but that's what I'm doing. It works. Yeah. And that's skill work practicing transitions as well. Even if it's not done at hate your life effort, it's still you know, the blood shunting transition principles. So it's effective. That's right. Yeah. All right. I got another one for us. Cool. I've noticed in your shoe episodes, you've never mentioned barefoot slash zero drop brands like Ultra, Vivo, Barefoot, etc. Have you ever tried them? And if so, what was your experience in them? Yes, we have tried them actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't you start this one out? I don't know if the audience knows this, but I'm a pretty big ultra fan. And I think you know that, that I I do like a number of their shoes. In fact, I raced a Spartan National Series race in a pair of ultras, Big Bear of all places, uh, back in 2019. Um, I'm a big fan of like a fast shoe like their Escalante um, for the roads. And I really liked their Lone Peak for the trails. I ran in them for years. Um, The Zero Drop worked for me, helps me forefoot strike. I feel good. I just have found the zero drop and a little less cushion long-term wasn't as healthy for me personally. Um, So I transitioned to something with a little bit more cushion. However, uh, very good. I mean, I've had good experience. I haven't gone into like Vivo Barefoot or any of those other brands, um, but uh, I've had good experience with Ultras. I've just, I just found Hoka in general for mileage was a better choice. So, Mm -hmm. but yeah, that's, that's where I'm at with that. And I've run an Ultra as well. I guess there's a couple reasons why I don't talk about them much. The first is that there's really just not many options. If you want zero drop or barefoot style, there aren't many brands doing it. And when there aren't many brands doing things, innovation doesn't happen very quickly. 
And when innovation doesn't happen quickly, you kind of then have to pick between do I want zero drop or wide forefoot or do I want a really, really good shoe? And it's not that Ultra doesn't make really good shoes. It's just that you're missing out on a lot of the features that other shoes have. Now, Ultra in the last, I would say, 16 to 18 months has really revamped what they're doing. And their 2022 offerings are looking really solid. But when you talk about road racing, there are just always shoes out there that if you don't need barefoot style zero drop, there's just better, faster shoes. And once you get on the trails, even though I do like a lot of their shoes, you're always sacrificing something. And generally it's foot lockdown. Unless you have super wide feet, when you start running technical or you start descending, your feet are just not locked down into place. And for most people, it's just a, it's a non-starter. You can't, most people can't descend the way they'd like to with their foot shifting all around in there. And I, so I don't recommend it because I just don't know a whole lot of people who that works for, but the people that it does work for, they're already doing it. Yep. Like you find ultra because you need and love ultra. The people who are, we're generally talking to in our shoe reviews need some guidance or want some guidance to find things. The ultra wearers are already there. And I'm not a believer in the Vivo barefoot style, the super minimal. Um, I don't buy the argument that our ancestors ran barefoot. We should be doing that too because they weren't running 100 mile weeks and they weren't running bombing technical terrain. They were avoiding those kind of things and they were Mm -hmm. shuffle jogging and they weren't doing it for fitness nor for performance. So I'm not a believer in that kind of thing. So that's my all encompassing reasons why I don't talk about them. I think it's a rare breed that can go descend hard in a pair of wide forefoot type shoes like Ultras. I had a sesamoid issue in 2019 and my foot was hurting when it bumped the edge of my shoe. And so I had to wear Ultras for that reason. And after running Big Bear, um, I I think I lost minutes on the descents compared to a shoe that really stuck to my foot minutes. And I had... Uh, larger than golf ball size blisters on the pads of both of my feet um, from descending so hard and the the movement in the forefoot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tied those shoes so to, so tight I was worried I would hurt myself and it still didn't help me out there. Um, that's just my personal experience. I think on flat terrain or flatter terrain, they start looking a little nicer. Um, and we're talking when you're aggressively descending. I don't know if, if yeah. you're taking your time. It's a little different, but... That's just been my experience. Why we don't, I don't give them credence myself anymore for that reason. Yeah. And I do know that while some people are quote unquote cured of their injuries while moving to barefoot style, way more people get injured by it than are cured by it. And I'm just not going to promote something that gives someone the ability to injure themselves further. Uh, Becca Jones, we had on, she either runs in sandals or she runs in ultras. There are people that it absolutely works for, and that is fantastic. I would never, ever judge what works for people, but I'm also not going to push people towards it if they don't already think that it's good for them. No. Um, Next one from Micah Reeves. Um, I'm not sure if this is a question. A couple unsolicited (laughs) thoughts. So what happens is um, every once in a while, Bracken's wife, Lisa, uh, goes through and will like screenshot messages we get if we don't get a chance to get to them and send them to us. So this is in my my Lisa screenshot file. So I haven't read some of these yet, but uh, a couple unsolicited thoughts. One, start a Patreon. You deserve some additional compensation for all the effort you put into giving us free information, entertainment, and camaraderie. You could give up more specific workout advice 
exclusive conversations, early access, etc. for a few bucks a month. You've earned it. All right, Micah, I appreciate that. Micah, I'll send you my Venmo. Two, would you consider having more high-end age group athletes or second, third-tier elites on the show? I feel like that's an uh, underserved group and so relatable for the large chunk of the audience. Hearing from people like us could be very interesting and motivating. Yeah. I could not agree more. And that's why we're seeking out people you don't know for guests as well from time to time. But uh, Patreon, Patreon, Patreon. We... There might be something in the works outside of this bracken, right? That yep. Maybe we'll there'll be an opportunity there, but we can't share that yet. Can't announce it yet, but there's there's something in the works where if you really want to give us some money, you'll be able to. It will not affect this show though. This is a secondary outlet. So hang on, hold tight. Try to keep that money from burning a hole in your pocket, and we'll give you an outlet for it soon enough. <laughs> Let's leave them leave them at that, right? Yeah. Uh, Nick Spencer says, what are, your, what are your guys' thoughts around training backwards to go faster forward? Also, training backwards helps with longevity in the knees, question mark. Maybe a topic for a Q&A episode or an interview with Ben Patrick, the knees over toes guy. What do you think about backwards running? Well, first of all, knees over toes guy I've been following since my surgery. I think like 50% of what he does is super spot on and good. So I'm a fan of his. Mm -hmm. And as someone who's self-taught and someone who's exploring different techniques, I think that getting 50% of it bulletproof and beyond reproach is a huge, tremendous result. So when I say I agree with half of his stuff, maybe more than half of it, that's a compliment. That's not a, that's not a, an insult to what he's doing. Running backwards. I'm a proponent of it. I think it's helpful. I do backwards sled pulls from time to time. I'll go backwards uphill on my treadmill. I don't believe it's a component necessarily to getting faster. I think it's a component to being healthier and more bulletproof and more durable, which then allows you to do more training and not break down in races, which makes you faster. I don't necessarily think that there's like this free speed unlock, but there's a longevity and durability unlock that's waiting for people there. Why don't you give the principle? Um, so I did a little bit of this in high school. I read it somewhere in a book, thought it was a good idea, and we would do a mile backwards in the hallways in the winter um, with no real sound reasoning or anything other than hamst- extra hamstring engagement mm-hmm. and calf recruitment, and it's good to balance out your fitness, so to speak. So that was the premise I went on, and I, I, I haven't done it since. And the gentleman who took third at the race this past weekend Nathan Swenson, who is a college soccer player turned uh, endurance athlete, um, backwards runs multiple times a week when I follow him on his Strava. He is backwards running on the treadmill multiple times per week. And I mean, he's he's gotten a lot better over the years, but I it could be consistent body of work too. So like, what's is there any other premise there that people should know? Like, I agree with your sentiment about it making you more in, potentially injury-free, uh, but making you run faster directly i'd have a hard time yeah i'd have a hard time making you believe that i mean the low-hanging fruit with it is that most runners have just awful rear chain strength endurance Mm -hmm. engagement uh running should be very rear chain engaging but it's mostly quad dominant for most people and and going backwards will help imbalances Second of all is that it puts a lot of force down and forward into the front of your quads and into your knees. 
And that's a very important part of your body to bulletproof. That's where a lot of injuries stem from is landing with force driving down and forwards. That's where the knees over toes guys come from is that where people are, have been taught for decades, don't let your knees get over your toes when you squat. It's bad for you. It generates too much force. There's shearing force there. It's taking all like anything patella related and putting it to its farthest point of where it should be stable. And his premise is that, hey, every sports specific movement you make, your knees get over your toes. When you squat down to jump quick for a rebound, if you pause people, their knees are over their toes. When you plant to dunk, your knees are over your toes. When you land coming down off the ground, your knees are over your toes. When you plant to cut hard, your knees are over your toes. So mm -hmm. if we don't train our knees to be over our toes, then yes, all of those previous assumptions are correct. It's bad for you. But if you work on that, when you have to use it, you're bulletproofed in that area and you're no longer getting injured. So that's the concept. And working that area is really big for having healthy, strong, stable knees. And walking backwards is good for that, as is having your knees over your toes. So that's a lot of the, the premise behind why to do that. You can go deeper, and maybe we should just have someone like that on. I don't know if we need to go super deep. But I think the, the main takeaway is it's not free speed, it's free durability. Yeah, I agree with that. He would be a good one to get on. Maybe we should reach out to him. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Uh, this is from Matt. Uh, hey guys, give me the quick version of an answer here, or this would be a good Q and a potentially. I've been listening for a long time and doing my own research on the side. One thing I still don't have a definite, a definitive answer to in my head is when base building for say eight weeks, how often is it okay to breach aerobic ventilatory threshold during gym sessions? My plan is for eight weeks of strength and volume based building with some Metcon pieces sprinkled in. I've been monitoring intensity during said Metcons as to not breach anaerobic threshold if possible. All other work is being done at or below aerobic threshold for this phase. Does that sound right? Yes and no. Yeah. Well, first of all, this is, again, we say this a lot, but this is the kind of thinking that makes me happy. Mm -hmm. This is someone digging into their training and making sure they're doing the little things and the big things correctly. Matt really could have used this answer oh, about December 22nd of last year when he sent this to us. So we're probably not much help anymore. Well, Matt, other people can learn from your unanswered question. Mm -hmm. First of all, there is sometimes this worry that if you're shooting for a certain intensity or zone, if you breach it, you've lost all benefit. And that is not the case most of the time. If you are shooting for one thing and you breach it, the work doesn't go out the window. That's not the way the human body works. You may compromise your recovery a little bit, or you may compromise the amount of time you can spend at that zone. And I'm getting less specific to his answer, but let's say you're trying to run at ventilatory threshold one and you breach that. Well, your heart rate might take a while to come down. You might get overall less work in at the zone you wanted, but it's not an all or nothing type deal. It's why some people can do 70-30 splits, some do 80-20, some do 90-10. It's because it's not exact. You have leeway. So yeah, you can breach ventilatory threshold in a gym session and you're going to be just fine. That's the quick, easy answer. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Heck, I would seek out high heart rate Metcons during a base phase yeah. just to keep that system, the box checked in a non-running way. So I, would, I wouldn't hold back at all if you wanted to do one once a week. That really sucked uh, go nuts. I don't think it's going to skew your base building phase at all. In fact, it might help your transition into higher quality work a little bit. Yeah. And I think that that's, 
that's the most important part of what either of us said right there is helping the transition to the next stage. Yeah. Oftentimes runners get injured changing from one stage to the next because they've let something go too far without keeping in touch of it. And so rather than adding a little speed or intensity being something that compromises your build, it's actually something that will allow you to not be compromised in your next stage. And that's a very often missed piece, but we're proponents of not letting anything go. You just let it kind of, you don't want to let it lapse. You want to let it stray a little bit and then get it into line and stray and get into line. What your minimal viable dose is to keep in touch with those systems. Yep, exactly. Uh, Troy Cully asks, like four months ago, and this one actually makes me happy to read. Um, hey guys, maybe I missed an episode where I was it was discussed, but I'd love to discuss how to best tackle and how you guys tackle obstacles. I know it's a running public, and that only speaks to the OCR athletes, but I think it would be a fun conversation. Well, boom, we did it. Boom. There's a little more there, but uh, that one was for you unknowingly, sir. Um, next one from Kelly Brown. Kelly says, uh, sometime last year, Bracken mentioned he would be doing all of his training as some sort of compromised running. Oh, accountability question. Yeah. And note the outcome. Did I completely miss the update about how this went? Bracken, did you stick to this plan? I've been dying to hear the details unless I missed it somehow, in which case, whoops. There's more questions here, but let's let's come clean. It's embarrassing. No, you're right. I talked about that. And then a few months later in our episode about accountability or motivation or whatever it was, I talked about how I just fell off the training bandwagon last year. I lost passion. I lost consistency. I lost desire. And so, no, I didn't see it through. I ended up not really racing all summer. Most of the spring, most of the fall, I just didn't do much other than spot workouts it was uh it was it was a low point in my running career and that's not ideal so kelly you are correct i did not see it through we uh we forgive you bracken us at the running public know there's peaks and valleys with running and training and our love and out of love natured relationship with it is this what i did to you this week what i answered all this already I came clean. We talked about it. I got the support messages and then we brought it back up now. And I felt like, ah, yeah, you're right. But I, 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 I dealt with this and I put it behind me. Is this what I did to you by watching Bachelor in Paradise and then messaging you <laughs> during episodes and sending you pictures of my TV and being like, what's going on here? Hey, this is what I'm watching. Is this a chapter that you buried and I'm dredging back up? Not at all. No. I mean, I'm not necessarily proud, but I have no... There's no emotional, really, like, seated attachment to it. So, no, not at all, actually. Wipe the sweat off your brow. Well, I finished the season, and I have – Kirk and I had a quick conversation about it, but I have many thoughts, and we decided that we're just going to go on a long run and get it all out. I'm going to air all my grievances with the show and with the episodes and with the cast. (sighs) I've got a lot. i got a lot to say. I missed this whole section of history, and I'm I'm in it now. Uh, you won't see much of the the history. It would be uh, overselling it. That's for sure. I know you got a timeline here, Bracken. So how long how long do you have here? I've got fifteen minutes. I can give a good fifteen minutes. Okay. Um, did you think the breakup at the end was as bad as some people perceived it to be? I don't think it was even top two or three breakups on the show that season. I think the overreaction 
was top one on the show. Her reaction is what killed me. She just lost her marbles. And everyone sided with her. At least everyone that they showed on screen sided with her. I don't know if there was anyone who was like, yeah, man, that wasn't that bad. I don't, he's been talking about it all week that this is, <laughs> they didn't show any of that. So it looked, it looked outrageously overblown to me. Thank you. I agree. We kept waiting for it to get bad. Lisa and I even said, maybe next episode it gets really bad. Well, she just lost her, she just lost her mind. And, and that reflected, if she handled it like a civil adult, there would have been nothing to talk about because everybody else who was broken up with handled things like a civil adult. Tenley took the rug right underneath, out from underneath Josh in the final episode, and he That's took it like a say. like a man and didn't and didn't lose his mind. Just like I understand, and I thought I had a more reasonable conversation with Carly. Yet she, it was like I killed her dog. And yet Tenley was on your episode is sitting there going. I think he played her. That was so unfair. It was, and she just ranted against you. And then the next episode, she broke up with him. Exactly. Like, what's worse, doing it a week before the final or dragging him to the final? And they kept saying, like, he used her. And I kept thinking, what did he use her for? How much money did you win? <laughs> Zero dollars. There was not no money to win. And you did it before the final, which would get you extra screen time like there was no using and actually you get paid per episode so i would have gotten more yeah. money technically yeah yeah and then they did the same thing themselves she and she seemed like a nice person mm -hmm. i don't know how she is in real life but she was likable and she yeah. trashed you and then did the same thing but <laughs> worse except yeah I don't, I don't i don't know it was it was very strange to watch kurt you were vilified and there were people that should have been vilified and got off easy you're a good friend bracken Second point, we have, we I'm can't, not done with this. We'll have to continue off mic unless there's a push from the audience to really dive into this. We can make an episode. I'm going to call Woods today and talk with him about it. All right. Um, her second point, for your next T-shirts, silhouette of an unclothed running public man standing at the front door. <laughs> I like that one. Which one of us? <laughs> and well, from what angle? Just... The uh, the running public man, I think, is unclothed. Oh, there. I thought a man from the running public. Uh, well, either way, it, it's not going to be impressive if that is the case. Um, all right. And number three, last one, weak glutes and runners. So I always thought I had kind of strong glutes. I'm solely basing that off of things like being able to max out on the donkey kick machine at the gym, something I've never seen any dude do, and being able to hip thrust three times my body weight. But fast forward to the part where I developed a stress fracture of my ischium from training. Hi, Kirk. She's an uh, athlete of mine until she got injured. And my PT tells me, you have weak glutes. How does she know? Is that just something they all say because they don't really know? It's not like she grabbed my glute. <laughs> <laughs> and you're going to the wrong PT. <laughs> she should get her hands on those glutes, Kelly. What do you think? I can't speak to anyone's individual PT. However, glutes not firing might be the single most overused, relied upon phrase in the sports medicine world that I've ever seen. Drives me nuts. Drives me nuts. It's like that balance test they do with the with the magnets at the mall. They're like, put your hand out. Oh, you see me push you over? Put your hand out now. Whoa, you're so much stronger. You know why? You don't have rare earth metals on your body. It's the same <laughs> thing. We're like, hey, 
do this. Whoa, did you feel that? Your glutes didn't fire at all, but I can fix you in just 16 sessions at $250 an hour. I just don't buy it most of the time. Is it a real issue? Yeah, and I've struggled with it myself. But it doesn't mean that it's it's a one-size-fits-all catch-all and shouldn't be applied that way. So again, not talking about Kelly, your specific PT, but I'm always hesitant when I hear people say glutes. I don't know what to tell you, Kelly. I mean, you can max out the donkey kick machine, Kelly. You know, is there not another gold standard of glute toughness? I don't know. I I don't even know what to say about that one because it's just like tough to – it's tough to know. I still get confused on like the whole, and I mean, I'm in the field, like it's more about like activating your glutes versus having weak ones. It's more learning to actually utilize them. It's probably not that they're weak. It's probably that they aren't firing properly, if anything. And so the term weak glutes, I think should be completely erased and it should be more like your body's ability to use them properly. I think there's a big difference there. Yeah. And I'm not even going to extend my advice into the medical world. I, I was going to overstep my bounds, Kirk, and I'm not going to. Do you know that Dr. Fred Clary, um, when I first started working with him, I saw him t- like twice this last week. He's my chiropractor. He, we had him on the show. Um, great episode. Go back and listen to Dr. Fred Clary's episode. But uh, he told me when I was in there the first time that I have – the weakest and smallest puniest rhomboids he'd ever he's ever felt in his life and i was like excuse me i was like i just did like six pull-ups with 100 pounds around my my waist like rhomboids are a layered muscle in your back um between your shoulder blades kind of in that area anyways told me i had the weakest and scrawniest rhomboids if anybody's ever do you know why he told you that because he felt he feels inferior that's why because you have overdeveloped ab, pec, and biceps. Had you walked in there emaciated with your rhomboids, he'd be like, whoa, you got some rhomboids on you, son. But he looked <laughs> at your pecs and thought, this is show muscle guy. I've got to bring him back down to earth. <laughs> no, he told me that I had tears in both of my rhomboids, and that's why I was experiencing so much pain, and now they're just wafy and little. That's what he told Could me. Like, I think I think he was blinded by your pecs. So he told me I had weak, so weak rhomboids. Not the glute spiel, though, Kelly. Uh, should we try just maybe one more? You go one, I go one. Okay. Scott Neth. I live in an area that is almost 100% asphalt and concrete without grass along the margins to use for lessening impact. I don't feel safe running our local trails at night, high mountain line numbers. But one thing I do have is the beach. Running on the hard packed sand at water's edge is easy on my joints and not so difficult that I won't do it, unlike the soft sand further from the water. However, there is a constant angle down to the water, and while it's steeper in some areas than others, the water side leg always steps down further than the other. I try to balance this by going an equal distance in each direction, but am I still at risk of some kind of injury by running long distances along the angled sand? Thanks. Yes, you are. However, it might be the key to bulletproofing. It's... This is one of those things where you can put 10 athletes on that same thing and you're going to get three or four different responses to it. Yeah. Some people are going to get IT issues. Some people are going to get ankle tendonitis. Some people are going to get to the point where nothing can ever hurt them because of running on that. So it's about finding your current max time you can spend on that and not exceeding it until you're ready to. I know it's a crappy answer, but that's the only answer I can give. I think the benefits probably outweigh the risks in that one. And if anything starts to pop up, then be careful on all my vacations that are beach or ocean related. I do the exact same thing. And it's only been limited 
exposure, but I've never come back with an injury. Um, but again, it's like if it do four runs on the beach in a week, that's yeah. not long term. So I don't know, but I like I like what that would do to like strengthening your hips and strength, mm-hmm. strengthening your ankles. Um, that slight difference is going to be good on the supination side, one direction and the pronation side and the other. And that's a really powerful thing. So uh, I don't hate it. Here's the uncomfortable truth. If you want to be safe about it, breaking it up into less duration each direction is going to be the way to do it. A two-hour long run where you do an hour out, an hour back is going to be way more uh, high risk than doing 10 minutes out, 10 minutes back six times. And so it's going to be way less mentally comfortable to do that, but you can mitigate your risks by spending less time on one side. That's a good point. All right, here's my final one. Oh, what do you know? It's a shoe question. How do you determine when to bail on a shoe? I know BK has told the story a couple of times of how a shoe took him out a season, and I've had a pretty severe Achilles injury from stubbornly sticking with a shoe too long. Personally, I got Speedgo 5s a year ago, and the first few runs my shins were crying. Then they settled in, and I can use the shoes once a week or so with no issues. Similarly, I got VJ Max and given them ample opportunity to settle in, including probably 50 miles in, in one race, and every time they give me right arch pain. This is a tricky one because some shoes have a break-in period. Mm -hmm. However, I have no tolerance for such things. If shoes give me issues, they are gone. The only break-in period I accept is allowing foam to conform to my feet or to break in a little bit. I can go through a little bit of foot discomfort in one little part of my foot that I know that's the part that reacts to shoes that need some time to break in. I will let materials loosen up. If I get Achilles, if I get shin, if I get bone if i get anything that i don't like i don't give the shoe another chance and if i can only run in a shoe one time per week i think that's telling me everything i need to know i have the rule of three like if you walk into the wall three times take the door right in this Mm -hmm. case if you run in a pair of shoes three times and you still don't find that they're they're feeling like they should toss them or sell them i think three is reasonable but i agree any shoe that I've loved, I've put on in the first run. It's been like sitting in a nice like bubble bath. It's just like, ah, it's that's it. That's it right there. I've never had one of my favorite pair of shoes that work with me and need that ever. Yeah. I think Adidas. Yeah. I think Adidas is one of the brands that I've that I've had to give a few runs in. But it's not because of a pain or not working with my stride. It's that some of their foam, some of their materials need to loosen up over time and then it gets more comfortable or if it gets more poppy but it's not because it doesn't work for my foot and i think identifying that you hear shoes that need 50 miles to really loosen up and come alive but there's a difference between coming alive and causing pain mm-hmm. yeah i agree with that especially arch stuff i don't mess around with arch stuff I am nope. so terrified of soft tissue issues on the bottom of my foot because i know so many people that once it starts it doesn't stop that at first sign i bail it's over Know what shoe I did that with? I wanted them to work so bad. Do you remember when Reebok came out with their DMX shoe? I own the DMX, Kirk. So I owned the DMX. Uh, freshman, so- so- sophomore year of high school. The DMX was a shoe that had air bubble pockets in it by Reebok. It was supposed to be super innovative, and you could actually feel like your forefoot squish into the bubble. Yeah. 
on the bottom. And I had run like three miles and my calves would hurt so bad I'd have to stop and walk. And then I'd run in them again and try and try and try because the Reebok DMX was the innovative technology, believe it or not, at the time. And man, they pushed that shoe hard. And what the heck was I doing, Bracken? I don't know anyone else who had that shoe. Look at us. Oh, I had, I think I bought two or two pairs. I had a white pair with black and yellow, and it was so pretty. And DMX was pretty hot at the time. Yes. It was a match made of heaven. They were on sale at some like Marshalls or TJ Maxx or something, and they were horrible. Horrible. That was probably the worst shoe ever made, like, as far as like. I don't know, because they pushed it hard. It was promoted. Reebok didn't have a big name in the running game, and they came out with this shoe, and it was advertised, and man, was it an egg, in my opinion. Hmm. Hmm. Well, rest in peace, the DMX. I ran into it with the North Face Flight Series. I was testing those out, and they just never worked for my foot. And after about five runs in both, or three runs, four runs, whatever it was, I just sold them. I got rid of them, put them on eBay. Like, someone else will use these. I don't want to use them anymore and remove any of the wear from this shoe. Let's just... Put them on to someone they work for. Yep. Bummer. Um, all right. Well, you got somewhere to be. I got somewhere to be. I'm going to go talk to a high school right now, Kirk. Oh, you are? What are you doing? Yeah. Uh, talking to a class that is uh, working on starting a podcast. I love that. So I'm going to go in and they're going to pick my brain on it. I love that. Well, good luck, man. It's simple. Talk about shoes. Put shoes on your wall. Tell the audience you like shoes. That's it. You're set. That's not how it works. This is how it works. Even if you're garbage and you're terrible at whatever at podcasting, just show up and record something and do it consistently. That's as simple as it gets. And maybe, just maybe you'll get lucky and people will listen. Yeah. That's that's the whole deal. But you gotta show up consistently. You gotta do it consistently. No matter how good or bad you are. Whatever you do, you gotta do with confidence and consistently. Yep. Well, uh, let, let us know if you want a uh, – Bracken's been bugging me about the Bachelor questions like for the last week <laughs> constantly, and we haven't had a conversation about it yet. So you as the listener need to let us know if you want us to do that while we're talking into the mics or if you if it's just eye-roll worthy and we'll save it for our own personal time. But it's the only feedback Either I'm way, looking for, Bracken. I'm getting my answers. Mm-hmm. All right, folks. Till next time. <laughs>